Hi, Jack. Hey, Rob. How you doing, man? You good? Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. It's always nice to see you, Rob. How was your sporting weekend? It's been good, actually. There's been a lot of sports since last we spoke. I watched yeah. England get absolutely trounced at Edgbaston in the One Day International with... Yeah. Uh, no, the T20, sorry, with uh, New Zealand. After, I mean, the two games they played prior, they absolutely annihilated New Zealand. Yes. Lockles turns up to Edgbaston. Yeah. Uh, they were awful. Absolutely awful. So you're a bit of a bad omen because you, we lost the first Ashes test there when you, in your presence as well, didn't we? Yeah, I shan't be going there anymore. There's like a most wanted poster at, at Edgbaston <laughs> with my face on it. I just can't go there ever again. But no, it's been yes. good. There's been lots of, uh, lots of different sports. We won't talk about the Albion because they're crap. Yeah. You, re- you sent me a text message the other week going, I'm through with the Albion. Yeah. Take it for Lockles to be a little bit dramatic. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sort of a bit done. It's all non-league football for me at the moment. So I'm looking forward to getting a grassroots non-league amateur clubhouse chat in the bank at some point. Yeah. Did you watch any this weekend? I did, yeah. Hell's Own Town, my non-league team, they played Stamford, who they came up with. And I genuinely saw probably one of the best goals I've ever seen live. And I'm not even joking. Because you know when really? you watch... Yeah. Because you know when you watch like um, the EFL highlights and it starts... Yeah championship and goes to league one league two league two always has some absolute belters in them because they've got more time around them they're not as good at football they've got more time on the ball take it out of the feet ping it into the top bin unbelievable non-league even better yes what always i when you see those highlight programs what i always seem to see is that someone like audaciously shooting from about 40 yards out yeah. and it always just sort of dips over a keeper who's hopelessly out of position yeah. and the sort of 47 people in the <laughs> small slightly disheveled stand behind yeah. go wild and made of crumbly concrete like the schools yeah. are these days yeah, literally. yeah but yeah and also of course the rugby world cup yes i gave that a watch cue the introduction of the guest i think <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. i'll go into my slight commentator voice now for you yeah here he comes he's posh phone voice <laughs> yeah. well i was doing a little voiceover today for a friend's app who's launching an app and he asked me to do a little promo for it and sent me these two scripts and I suddenly became really self-conscious of my accent because we hadn't, he didn't really give me a sense of tone that he wanted for it. So then I found myself doing one of those hybrid, slightly <laughs> ironing out the long vowels in my voice, but not yeah. consistently enough. And I was like, am I, hang on, am I doing a cheaper Sean Bean voice over here or am I doing my RP version? And shot Sean Bean. Yeah. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and I was sort of doing a half and half. So I did, I stopped. And did a full-on, like, Yorkshire, like, Sean Bean. Oh, my God. And then I did a slightly RP'd one where I tried, where I said things like... Um, uh, master, master, that one. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, I, yeah. I went to master versus master, that sort of thing. I haven't heard back from him yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. The thing is, when you say master and you use the elongated RP version of it, it's almost like you put an accent on that as well. It sounds yeah, so Yeah, I know. Awesome. It's weird, isn't it? Okay, well, now listen it out for it on uh, next okay, instruction. Well. So here we go. Are you ready? Cue theme tune. It's Stage Door Athletic with Jack Loxton and Rob Shaw Cameron. Please take your seats. Kickoff is about to commence.
So today's guest was made to be a member of Stage Door Athletic. After flirting with a degree in French sociology and law, he decided, in his words, to run away to the circus and go to drama school, attending Italia Conti in London before setting off to ply his trade as a turn and self-confessed show-off. Now, his love of sport, particularly rugby and microphones, led him to reconnect with his childhood dream of being a broadcaster. He began by hosting and producing a podcast on the Rugby Blog website way ahead of his time. And his opportunity to get behind the commentator mic for the first time came for BBC Radio Surrey Online, Nottingham versus Isha. And he hasn't looked back since. Now a lead commentator on men and women's rugby for broadcasters around the world. Not only that, Nick became a lockdown hit, keeping us entertained and raising huge amounts of money for NHS charities as host of Nick's Pub Quiz. Nick's Pub Quiz. (laughs) Nick's Pub Quiz. As well as interviewing TV and radio's best sporting commentators in his podcast, Q Commentator, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Nick is also founder of Pride in Touch with his partner, Tom, an organisation aimed at improving LGBTQ plus participation in touch right across the world, and now actually consulting in other sport as well. He is quite simply the embodiment of a sports-loving lovey and an all-round wonderful guy. Welcome to Stage Door Athletic, Nikki. Thank you very much. What yes. a very, very lovely interest. Someone has done their research. Good. Uh, it's <laughs> always a pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Thank oh, you, Jack. Lovely really to be good. here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Good to a see commentator, you, no less. Mm. It's crazy, isn't it? You're going to sound so much more interesting than we are. It's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't don't put that pressure on me um it's quite interesting though hearing you go through that because with the 15 years of sort of doing the broadcast thing now i actually was recently hosting an england rugby squad dinner doing a bit of mc work i was in front of 330 people before steve borthwick's squad went off to france for the rugby world cup and was sort of saying you know and some of you may know who i am some of you may not but obviously i've been commentating on this and i've called this world cup and i've done that but more of you probably know me as the bloke that voiceovered people pushing prams around the park dogs chasing each other that was the moment about 25 people went ah <laughs> just like yeah. so you can spend 15 years trying to master one craft go viral for five minutes during lockdown 100 percent. i mean quite similar to actors really if if me and rob did an advert for mcdonald's that went viral that's the only thing we'd know about yeah it's certainly the one it's the one that your auntie knows mm. whereas yeah. you know you play that long-awaited part you've always wanted at the royal court in a brand new play by that emerging playwright for you it's the pink of your career and friends and family go oh that sounds great yeah you can't make it unfortunately but all the best it's going to be lovely yeah it's really challenging me it's pushing my boundaries it's the thing i'm the most proudest of yeah but that advert you did for green flag was fun wasn't it (laughs) exactly Um, yeah Yeah. my older brother still thinks that i'm trying to present grandstand fantastic bring back grandstand i totally agree fantastic Uh, it's purely for the theme tune the theme tune alone deserves another series go on so take us back because you, your aspiration originally was to be an actor. It where was, did yeah. that stem from? When did you get that first sense? I was, I guess, you, well, <laughs> that first sense, probably being the youngest of three siblings and the ginger kid out of the family. So there was something innate in me that needed to be centre of attention and, and fight for, for my moment in the spotlight. Yeah, it was just acting at school and then through secondary school, continue to do it. And then almost that thing that you kind of get at school, which is if you've been doing it longer or putting yourself up, for the parts longer than anyone else then you just start to get the lead parts yeah 
And it's quite difficult, I think, to work out whether you're actually any good or whether the teacher's just going, well, let's just give him the part because he loves it. He um, turns up. up. Um, and then I did it regionally. Then there was a thing that I was at school in, in High Wycombe. There was the High Wycombe Swan, the Wycombe Swan Youth Project, where they would basically take 200, 250 kids aged 11 to 19 and put on a full-scale musical with t- in two weeks, basically. You'd have 11 days rehearsal. So the sort of the chorus, which would normally be, what, a dozen people in a decent show, 15 people, would be 200 people, Yeah, wow. generally the kids. And then your character chorus, which might be six or eight people in a normal West End show, would be 30 people. And then you'd have your principal parts on top of that. And I didn't hear about it till I was about 18 or 19, but got in for the last two shows I was eligible for age-wise. And it was quite a nice kind of local moment of recognition when they gave me an actual decent part rather than sticking me in the chorus. I was like, okay, that, then I must be doing all right. I must be at a certain level. Yeah, I was having a wonderful time in my sixth form. I didn't get the grades to go to proper university and get the proper degree my dad would have loved me to have got. <laughs> yeah. So I auditioned on the sly to go to, to drama school, auditioned at Mount View, auditioned at Bristol Old Vic and at Italia Conti, got in and then basically had to break it to my old man that I'd got into drama school and would he pay for me to go? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he said, uh, what? And he said, if you earn your first term's fees to show me how much, how committed you are to it, then we'll look at it. Wow. So I've swiftly ran away from my university in Preston where I've been for about seven months, got my nose to the grindstone and my first term's fees. And that was that. So I did three years. It was the, I don't know, I heard, I heard Sam Tutti was on. He was Italia Conti because there was, was a split. Yes. He was. Yeah. There was, there's a split at Italia Conti drama school. I, I mean, I'm assuming there sort of still is where you have the people that do the 16 to 19 year old sort of diploma yes. or maybe a bit older, which are very much the kind of jazz hands, musical theater stage kids. Yes. And then our course had only been going about four years when I joined it in 98 and that was the BA honours three-year acting degree where we complained a lot and smoked and drank a lot of coffee yes oh yes didn't we all yeah and we were based on Landor Road in Clapham oh yeah and the um, other lot were based up at the Barbican at the main sort of Italia Conti centre yeah it was a very intense course all your mates were at university at that time are doing 12 hours a week and we were doing nine to five thirty you know, Monday to Friday. Yeah. yeah, it's it's quite a, it's a sacrifice you have to make at drama school. It's really, you know, contact hours for normal universities are like 30 a week and it's like 30 a day at drama school. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let's take us back to your youth days. What kind of parts were you given? What kind of casting ranges were you getting in, in musicals and all that kind of stuff? Oh, that's a good one. I ended up playing Arvid Abernathy in Guys and Dolls. Um, which Great start already. Bearing in mind, that was when I was about 17, but bearing in mind, I looked 12 until I was 30. Um, <laughs> the idea that I was playing the old guy in the mission. So they did the stereotypical thing of putting talcum powder in my hair I was just about to say wet talcum powder out to try and age me but I was already a kind of you know strawberry blonde gingery kid anyway so it it just made me look even younger (laughs) and there is a video of it somewhere I don't know if I've still got it but I basically got very good at doing hip acting where I would just sort of angle at the hip in terms of trying to bend forward oh but Sister Sarah and (laughs) and all this kind of stuff the director also hated More I Cannot Wish You which is Arvide's song so he cut it and I was relatively happy with that um, because it's not a particularly (laughs) thrilling song the reason West End production of Guys and Dolls, unbelievable! Oh, yeah, I just I love the way it. they made they made Adelaide basically the main character, which I've not yeah. seen done that yes. well before. Marsha Wallace, amazing! She's stunning, Marsha Wallace as well. She's absolutely oh, incredible, that actress. Incredible, yeah. yeah. Um, I was in Inherit the Wind. I had to say a line in it, which I can still remember. I was about fifteen when I did because it was American accent, sort of Midwest American accent, and I 
um, had to say murderer, which is not an easy word in an American accent, to the point no. that I've tried this with Americans in the May struggle. <laughs> yeah. Because the line is, people look at me as if I was a murderer. murderer. <laughs> so I changed it. I just went, people look at me as if I was a killer. That was just a, 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 a lot easier. I was mustard seed in, uh, in you know, <laughs> in Midsummer Night's Dream when I was about seven so yeah and then it was the shows that i did locally i was perchick the crazy student in fiddle on the roof um which i thoroughly enjoyed That's fantastic this is quite a cv and then we did pirates of the penzance uh, pirates of penzance he's the romantic lead character anyway um i should remember his name but it was the sort of slightly modernized version yes. of the music and libretto i mean not massively but they put me in basically leather trousers and a big kind of ponytail wig and there were moments during the songs where they kind of were teaching t- encouraging me to elvis it up um which was yeah Fre- is it frederick that was a lot of fun and some high notes that my just about tenor voice could only just about cope with but yeah doing that in front of kind of a thousand people in a regional theater age 18 19 was was probably the height of my career right. and that's the weird thing about when you go to drama school sometimes you've you've grown up performing locally and at school yeah. or whatever you sort of do get to be a big fish and, and yeah. feel that moment where you go out after the show and there are little kids going oh my god can i have your can i have your autograph and you're like i'm just some 19 year old bloke who lives down the road but sure and then all the big fish come together to go to drama school in london yeah. and you go oh god we're all awful and, yeah. and we actually need to learn what we're doing here. Those first few weeks are great yeah. because you've just got to find your place in the class without not being the knob or being the quiet one yeah. and kind of getting yeah. out of it. It's really quite Jack tough. Jack was the knob, unfortunately. I was the knob, and then the quiet one, and then the big one, and then the small one. I was bloody everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, I was the loud one, and then the meek one, and then yeah. the gay one I, I also think i sort of think the experience of drama school in that way is something that everyone should go through because i don't think you quite get it because of the fact that as performers you then have to get to a point where you know exactly how you have to market yourself you, yeah. you need to know whether you're a six out of ten singer or a ten out of ten singer whether you're a nine out of ten character actor or a, like you have to you have to know otherwise you're wasting other people's time you're deluded or whatever it's quite an education in terms of how you go forward in life mm. you have to be quite in touch with yourself sure and it, it's, it's intense for an 18 year old to, to come to terms with that as well let alone you know a professional True. Actor as well. it's tough. so were you sporty as a kid I, it's interesting. yeah probably never particularly any good I just, I grew up in a rugby family, out and out rugby family. My dad was a referee for 25 years locally. Yeah. Rob Perks up there. He can tell his story again, Rob, about <laughs> refereeing. <laughs> Here it comes again, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, carry on. Um, my, yeah, my uncle ended up kind of being president of the local society, rugby society. So, yeah. so at school, I always wanted to play rugby. We were watching rugby at home. Was never particularly interested in football. Had some mates who were into football and one of them had a birthday at QPR and we went to Queen's Park Rangers to watch a game. It was, you know, I was born 78. So that kind of mid late 80s period of growing up as a kid, there was a lot of hooliganism stories. There was, you know, I just, I was like very lucky to be brought up in a pretty middle class background. So being surrounded by people in rugby where you sit next to each other, you buy, you know, that person a drink if they lost. And my dad would give lifts to people from Twickenham, you know, lifts to people who'd lost the game and stuff. It was just, there was so much camaraderie and I could never understand why people had to be segregated into different ends and why people can get on now obviously as you get older you realize that that tribalism is what holds those people together it is that community for people it is that sense of of letting loose at a weekend and cheering on their team but i think for that reason it was it was very much kind of rugby did a bit of softball at school which i really enjoyed i would always i was always quite active but it was always through a fairly strong rugby lens 
or then mucking about on stage probably yeah so how did those two things sit together because when i was going it was a genuine clash of cultures yeah is so of being in the school plays and then having to ask to leave rehearsal because i've got a rugby match that afternoon that i need to go to and that negotiation those two parts of my life were very present came to a head really ultimately when I went to drama school, because I had to retire from being my successful rugby league refereeing career, Jack. There he goes again. There he but is. Th- those two things really did challenge. <laughs> so we're competing for time, and I had to make a choice about them. But how did you manage those two very different worlds? Yeah, I think probably at the time I was playing rugby at school, I was. it would have been the lower years when I was sort of playing on a Saturday, and it wouldn't have been getting too much in the way of the extracurricular stuff. I think I probably prioritised the acting then for a number yeah. of years, knowing that the sport side was was a fandom as well it was a sense of expertise watching the games with my dad I would run the line for him at certain games so I think the acting very much took priority and that went through really through my early 20s through drama school to the point that I sort of turned my back on sport for a while because I was discovering myself living in London the life of Riley having a wonderful time but there is there's a hilarious picture of my bedroom in Tooting in my first rented accommodation during my first year of drama school where there are basically pictures all over the wall of bands and fit boys as I was coming to grips with my sexuality. But I I noticed, and I do remember having done it, but I'd completely forgotten. And it was a picture I discovered about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. And all these posters are on the wall. And in one tiny little A4 picture, there is a picture of an old Scottish man. (laughs) Because I had at some point clearly got a rugby world issue of a Six Nations preview or something and they'd done a feature on Bill McLaren the late great um, Scottish rugby commentator and I'd just seen the picture and I was just like he was my idol growing up I just remember how he would bring everyone into the game so I'd obviously taken that just very gently taken that picture out of the magazine and stuck it on my wall but it sort of sat sat quite juxtaposed to the very sort of sugary pop pictures that were all over (laughs) my wall to then just have some you know 80 year old Scotsman from Hike Um, it's a good picture to look back to and go it was always there somewhere yeah, it was yeah, just waiting to, to be re-nurtured plus that lady washing the car obviously that we all had irrespective of your <laughs> sexuality just we all had that first it was the <laughs> well it's the lady washing the car and it's the girl playing tennis lifting a skirt up as well the <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, yeah. We all had that. yeah maybe there's a bit of performer the performer in a commentator that you had identified yeah. consciously or subconsciously even then yeah yeah, absolutely. And and certainly the moment I decided or, you know, yeah, ha- had the pivot to go and rediscover the idea of chasing the broadcast dream in, in sport and in rugby was... I just went, well, this is perfect because I did three years of voice classes. Yeah. So I've, I've worked on my voice and I know how to, how to use it. I can toy with that and play with that. The slightly tricky thing was that I was getting work out of, as we all know, you know, performance and, and a sense of feeling you are a performer can take many forms. So I was, I was signed up with about 12 promotion agencies dressing as a sausage roll outside Greg's bakery, <laughs> dressing as, I dressed up as the numbers from those director inquiries numbers and, <laughs> Now I recognise you. I know exactly who you are. But but also then someone saying, oh, well, they need someone to go and help host a pub quiz. Can you go and do that? It's 70 quid for two hours. Yeah, I'll do that. Great. And I had mates that were doing profit shares above pubs for 135 quid a night with a cast of 11 people. And they're like, but I'm acting and I'm doing it. And I was like, I'm miserable and would like to buy beer and shoes. (laughs) So I took as much of that extra kind of performer style work. And some of it was, yeah, corporate hosting, DJing, quiz hosting, all that kind of stuff. So by then I was enjoying using my voice with a mic and I 
kind of thought if someone at this point handed me my dream West End role, which is going to be eight shows a week repeating the same stuff, then am I going to be as overjoyed by that as I am currently by having a mic in my hand sort of getting some makeup as I go along? And yes. that became the ultimate segue in my head in terms of, well, what if you take that to the next level and, and revisit the idea? Because I'd applied to do broadcast journalism from school, didn't get the grades. But by this stage, I was nearly 30. And I just thought, I've got to have enough guile to be able to do this through the back door now and, and yeah. find a way in, which is, yeah, as you mentioned in your intro, that's when I did a podcast for a couple of years. But yeah, it was there was definitely a real relationship. And I'd been doing this COD voice commentator on some of the work. I did some sort of it's a knockout style live events <laughs> where everything was this back of the throat and all those sort of Alan Partridge, Harry Davis, who could finish a 26 shot rally just with the, ah! <laughs> that's all it is. Um, so I just spent yeah years doing that. And then by the time I actually broke through to commentating, it took me a while to take the voice from the back of the throat and sort of start to move it forward so that it was at the front. Yeah. But it took about four or five years. If you hear some of my early commentary, I'm there sort of doing a, hello, this is the BBC and welcome to a rugby game. And, well, they're going to be really confident. It's just like, who are you? Yeah. Um, but it definitely took a while. But it's so, so related. I see the two things. And have it's, you, it's I was going to say, and have you, what specifically did you learn in those voice lessons? Well, you've already said that you were taking the voice from the back of the throat to the front, but in terms of performance and the drama mm. of being able to commentate on games, did, was that something that was nurtured during your commentary? Because you do listen to sometimes, and I mean, I'm, I'm a football fan, Peter Drury. Peter Drury's language is just, it's almost classical at times. How did you nurture that? I would say that probably my, one of my biggest work-ons is improving my vocabulary in that sense. Yeah. And, and you become aware when you first start, you know, the first first couple of years of games you do, you listen back and you go, everything was brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. And he's going, oh, it's absolutely brilliant. And just yeah. you know, try and find something else. And yeah. and tense, actually... Tense. Yeah. Jack says tense I said tense yeah, a lot. Okay. Yeah, I do. Right. Yeah, I think Good. tense at the cricket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will write down certain words and sometimes I'll write um, nice alliterative adjectives next to people's names so that if they do something nice, it works nicely. There's Beatrice Rigoni is, is a player for Italy women and she is just an absolute maverick. She can pull off something absolutely ridiculous, but she might a moment later then make a terrible decision and, and lose Italy the ball. But I was just sitting there before the Women's Six Nations earlier this year and it's just like the the rambunctious Rigoni, the, <laughs> yes, the, the, the reverent Rigoni. And so I just wrote sort of three or four of them down for when it might be needed. Rampaging, I think it was another. I'd actually, a friend of mine was doing a game, so a couple of weeks later, and I was just like, oh, I don't mind sending you my notes if it's helpful. And she was just like, oh, I've seen all of the all of the words you're putting next to people. That's good. And there are some sevens commentators that basically have a page of synonyms and adjectives in front of them. Yeah. And I don't want to go that far because I don't think... I don't think it helps the live feel to be overly yeah. prescriptive. But then, you know, my idol Bill McLaren would write, he would write basically the two or three summary sentences that were needed. And I've got, you know, he's famous for these big sheets of prep commentary that he used to do. And you can see them on the notes. I've, I've got one for um, the 99 World Cup final. And then a little box in the middle, if Australia had won or if Wales had won or whatever, or South Africa had won, then he's he's just there. And it's just like, well, they'll be cheering in the bars of Adelaide and Sydney and in Melbourne tonight <laughs> as they record their second well cut with like it's those three sentences that just needs to make sure he's rounded up the key journalistic facts are there yeah. as to it's a it's it's an x number of wins and it's this or whatever um so. so that so there's something fascinating about the degree of scripted versus improvisation that mm. you must be switching between constantly during the course of a game yeah totally 
and and from the start of the game, they always say to you try and script the top so that basically because that's when it's all timed. So you'll have it'll say ten second scene set. So they'll cut to that nice wide shot of a stadium. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Stade Velodrome in Marseille, England, due to take on Argentina this afternoon. It's second in the world against it, whatever it might be. Yeah. Then it'll then it'll say ten seconds on weather, and you'll suddenly get a little icon in the corner, what temperature it is, and then you'll have forty five seconds of teams in the changing rooms. Then you'll have fifteen seconds each team walks into the tunnel. Then they'll hold there. Then you get 30 seconds of team out. Then they'll be into there. Then you'll say, and now we're into the anthems. But all of that build up, you'll then have basically some stats and some bits. And of course, this is their third game of the championship. They got two points there. We're so disappointed. You might bring in your co-commentator if you're, you'll look at each other and look at the time and go, yeah, we've got time to bring this in. But ultimately, if something slows down or they're not quite there, you might have got to the end of your little scripted bit for that 30 seconds that's now going on for 60 seconds. So you've got to make sure you're keeping an eye on the monitor because if that starts to go to live pictures of someone's parents crying or something well look at the emotion it means to the fans you're getting ready to go back to your next bit yeah and then the team boards are the really scripted bit because yes. you have to say you know it's it's a 50th cap of fafta clerk this evening for south africa and sia khaleesi who's captaining for and you'll pick out a few highlights and then you basically might have i tend to do one line into kickoff you know so it's it's the final group game of this everything rides on this can they repeat the glory of last year's quarterfinal and then the ball will go up in the air and then i'm live and yeah. then it's then it's whatever you see yeah um you have to work i think my main work on is is and everyone's i think is just to make it while you might know it's scripted is to make it not sound too scripted yeah which ultimately is an acting thing anyway isn't it yeah we've got to make Quite, it sound exactly, like the lines, yeah. the lines are coming to us see i'm still saying us isn't that yeah. sweet <laughs> You're part of the squad. It never leaves you, Nick. It never leaves you. (laughs) But then there's the other element of, I guess, more so on telly. Well, no, I guess in radio too, that you've got a producer in here as well, driving and shaping that. So you've got to manage that, your co-com, what's in front of you, your notes and your preparation. The multitasking at a given time is is an art, actually, and a muscle to keep training. Yeah, yeah. And you'll have a producer, you might have someone feeding you a stat or two as well. And it's as ever with everything, every walk of life, the higher you get up to the top, where in theory, you've worked your hardest to get there, and therefore you're bringing all your skills the more help you've got. Yeah. <laughs> the more they help you, the more you've yeah. actually got someone who's a statistician sat in the truck alongside the producer that's turning around and saying, that's the first entry into the 22 this half, Nick. Well, that, uh, I think that's their first entry into the 22 this half, you know, that, and you get all of this fed to you. I um, did a few episodes of Michael McIntyre's Big Show where I was the lead actor with Michael McIntyre in your ear for the unexpected star of the show. Mm. And so you go in the day and rehearse these scenes a huge elaborate setups that had to be absolutely kept secret but you would try and practice michael's intervention and and what's going to happen and he would obviously want control and to script those things and then when you come to record it he would be in your ear going robert tell them this and it was partly directive and partly a reference to what we'd done earlier so you could assume some of the content mm. But I did one with Colin Jackson, the hurdler, who was also there, and he had Michael in his ear as well. It's funny when you see the episode, you can see Colin Jackson mouthing the words that Michael <laughs> is saying to him as he's receiving them in his ear, yeah. which obviously I knew better, hopefully, thankfully, for having been doing this sort of stuff before. But it's really fascinating because I'm thinking, don't, you're giving it away. You're giving it away. Yeah, shut up, lines. shut up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was really funny. I'm not sure I quite answered Jack's question before as well, though, but it also... The, 
the voice stuff also comes in as to when you know that there's a big passage of play where you've got to build from something to the end. Exactly. Is that that's a whole vo- vocal decision. Breath control. Breath yeah, control. 110%. 110%. I mean, some of these plays go on for so long. I mean, Peter Drury must have an oxygen canister next to him. How he's able to, these massive, long, sweeping statements. And these phases can go on for absolutely ages in rugby as well, especially. Yeah. Things that you do learn at drama school. It's, it's totally interchangeable, though, surely. Yeah. And I, I even think the expression through voice, you know, I mean, Martin Tyler's a a famous Aguero yeah. in every little rising note of that of that Aguero like you can hear yeah. each little realization of what that does for this game how that's going to affect what's just gone on in the other game that they were going back and forth to at United yeah and what it means for the season and also how ridiculous that goal actually was and you just yeah. you hear all of that in his Aguero and and then having analyzed it it's 14 seconds before he speaks again which is just perfect let the crowd do the rest of the work for you but yeah it was a fantastic it's so true as well and like the role of the commentator is so much more than just telling us what's going on it's such a gateway into the actual game that you're watching it's quite a lot of pressure really there's pits of commentary that take me right back to moments of being in the stand or moments in the pub where you're watching it or you know with the family watching world cup games in any sport and you're literally thrown back so it's tough yeah i'd be terrible at it rob i don't know about you it's terrifying when you see the moment unfolding in front of you that you know is the big moment i mean that's it's the fun it's the reason you do it it's the it's the shot of adrenaline to go god i better nail this yeah sure and i will put down the mic at the end of a game and go "Mm, six and a half out of ten probably yeah. not not didn't quite grab it and then once or twice i've gone I'll, I'll allow myself a nine or nine and a half there and I imagine you're physically exhausted as well yeah, you? you are yeah. a real physical and emotional commitment to setting off on a 80 90 inevitably a hundred minute stint yeah the, the the invitation to go and join people for beers afterwards is always a nice one to get but by the time you get there your adrenaline is on a, on a down and yeah. and you're like uh, i'm actually ready for bed but yeah i mean clive tilsley when liverpool won the champions league final and you know against milan the three nil down and three i mean his commentary i was fortunate enough to have him as a guest on my podcast but he <laughs> uh you know, he he sounded prophetic when Steven Gerrard scored the goal. It's just like, hello, hello, here we go. It's like, well, no, you were 3-0 down being completely outplayed, not here we go, it's not going to go anywhere. Gerrard, it's in, it's in, Smitsa. It's just obscene. Mission Impossible has become Mission, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's just stunning commentary that, that matches every moment of that game. But yeah, that lives with me in goosebumps because of, yeah. Because yeah. of he nailed those moments. I've had one, I think I'm, I sort of will put on the, put on the end Entry list. I was going to ask, what's what? What do you think you will be that you nailed? What were one of those nine point fives out of ten? Ten. Out of 10? I don't think anyone else will particularly relish it. I mean, the good thing was it was one of those where I, you know, might have looked at the comments on YouTube, but um, there were. <laughs> the good thing right. was it was lots of people going commentator nailed that. I was like, yes, <laughs> it was France against uh, Australia, twenty one, I think, and Australia basically had the ball under their own posts and monstered up the touchline and ran around and managed to score. Under the French posts, which in true French 1980s fashion would be the sort of thing the French would do. Yeah. And in the full sort of throated roar of the Aussie fans at, at the Stade de France and almost the French fans applauding it because it was such a brilliant score. Yeah. I managed to find the line out of nowhere. They've, they've scored a try carved in the very image of the French themselves. I was like, there we go. I'm done. That yes. is, that's, I'm, sure. I'm all for that. That is brilliant. <laughs> I'm now a rugby fan. I'm going to find that clip. That's brilliant. <laughs> Love it. Fantastic. I was very happy. This has now turned into an episode of Q. Commentator, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> put this out in your feed yeah, where the awesome. tables have turned. This oh, is God, how narcissistic no, is that? No, but this is fantastic. <laughs> this is exactly what we want. Again, just thinking about it, it's, I think it's a bit like refs, isn't it, that you want, the com- you want them to be present and engaged in a really key part of the game. You don't really want to be talking about them. You want to be talking about the event itself. That's a balance, isn't it? Because yeah. we're saying we love these memorable little bits that we want just to sing out. But nor do you want a commentator getting in the way of your experience a little bit. Yeah, and I think I think if you can also hear the overly written lines, it cheapens it. There's, yeah. there's one or two voices out there I know that they've thought of something quite funny that morning or the night before, and they've written yeah. it in, and then it might not quite have felt right to put it in, but they've gone for it because they'd prepared it. Yeah, and you're like, nah, 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 that shouldn't have happened. You should you should let that moment breathe and just let it let it be what it was. And I've it's also the thing these days, everything is chopped up. For social media, everything is a yeah, clip, yeah. and so Sad bites, yeah. yeah, and and I and I, for parts of my career, I've done lots of stuff where they've. I know I'm commentator for highlights. The full eighty minutes isn't going anywhere. I had that doing Champions uh, Champions Cup games for Channel Four. I knew that they needed a clean out. So ultimately, if they go over the line to score, then you're there going, "It's a brilliant try by Clement Overham. What a score in the corner! It brings them level." Because I may as well stop there because there's no yeah. point in me going, it brings them a level and, oh, the past there was it. Because you know an editor's going, please finish your sentence because this is turning into a 35-second clip rather than yeah. a 25-second <laughs> Yeah. So I get, you sort of get used to being able to round thoughts off quite quickly. Then when I'm then doing a sort of game that doesn't need it, I have had a producer say to me afterwards, just like, can you stop commentating for highlights? You have to commentate the game as you see it and yes. let it breathe and do the right thing. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. I and avoiding stating the bleeding obvious. I mean, yeah. I... Obviously, he's a great commentator, but I often hear Clive Tilsley sort of say something like, it's too all, surely the next goal will be meaningful. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yeah. yes, it's going to win the game, the next yeah. goal, Clive. But it must be very hard not to do that. I'm not criticizing the great Clive Tilsley, obviously. Yeah, I, um, think, I think his best years are behind him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was on your podcast, you can't say that. You've got to be nice to him. <laughs> I mean, you've seen some sport over the years, either behind the mic paying or going along as a guest, what are the standout memories you've got of being in the crowd for a sporting event? Yeah, I think behind the mic, in terms of atmosphere and majesty, France against New Zealand at the Stade de France in 2020 was just amazing. Um, the atmosphere was unbelievable and they beat the All Blacks. It was followed by a slight night out in town with Matthew Bastereau and a couple of... So the whole evening well, was pretty yeah. special. But yeah, but just cool. that, that atmosphere and being on the World Feed commentary for me was where I where I d- had deserved to be. Yes. So it wasn't... I wasn't like, oh my God, I shouldn't be here. This is amazing. But, but I was also like, look at my life. This is insane. And it was yeah, such an amazing, yeah. amazing game. Yeah, it really was. And then the Lions in 2017 in Australia... Sorry, in New Zealand was remarkable, and I still sort of I haven't watched back that third test that was a draw, and we all went home feeling a bit undersold, and it was just like oh, I sort of think if I was to watch that back, I'd still think that there's going to be a result, and there wasn't, and you know Warren Gatlin's famous line, it's like kissing your sister, and <laughs> it just it, you know we all just felt a bit like oh well that's it then, and and, and they've shared the spoils, and yeah. nobody really wanted that, but the experience of being on the Lions tour in, in New Zealand was very very special, and when I was younger, I had the 
honour of going to Twickenham when England won back-to-back Grand Slams. And my uncle was president of Buck Society at that point. And so he was down in a lovely function called the Rose Room at Twickenham when the England team came in and won. And so my dad and I got blagged in there and I was kind of rubbing shoulders at aged, what was I, 12, 13 with, um, with some of the England players that had just won another Grand Slam. And that's cool. As I'm now, because I've, I've worked with Brian Moore, for example, who yes. was in that team and I was in that room at the time. It's just like, oh, we've known each other since I was 13, actually, Brian. So you were a bit fanboy. I'm not particularly by that stage. He, interestingly, had been adopted and my dad and my uncle were adopted. So there was a point at which they oh, were giving wow. him advice when he looked to find his natural parents, which was all quite curious. So, yeah, I get on with him very well. He's, uh, he's, he's a Marmite character to a lot of people, but actually I love Brian Moore. He's good. And other things, you know, I remember watching Euro 96 and, and World Cup 98 in the pubs in terms of football. Yeah. Um, suddenly seemed to be quite taken with a young chap called Michael Owen at the time. <laughs> oh, um, Michael, yes. Even I was, to be fair. He's very, yeah, he's very dashing. Yeah, always love Rafa Nadal. Just watching him, the power and precision of his game is just absolutely majestic. I've always been a, a Rafa rather than a Roger yeah, fan. Yeah, That's interesting, though. I'm always, I hear more about Roger than Rafa. I just think, I think, I've said this in a podcast before, I think Roger Federer's got bedroom eyes. He's just very dreamy. <laughs> Yeah, really that's very Roger. <laughs> Roger, Roger is, you know, he is the Rolls Royce of, yes, of exactly, players, exactly. And, and had the all court game. Yeah. Do you watch? Uh, do you watch a lot of tennis? I do like tennis a lot. I was fortunate enough to go to Wimbledon this year. Um, it's something I really want to commentate on, but. It's yeah. a very closed shop. I have tried at various points to push on that door, but I was told fairly explicitly by an exec producer on it, we're very loyal in tennis, so until someone dies, <laughs> you don't really stand much of a chance because we'll just invite them back next year and the year after. So, right, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I would love to do it, partly just to emulate the great Barry Davis and sit there mm-hmm. drink, drinking an espresso martini, watching a rally of 37 shots, and when it finishes on telly, just going, ah! <laughs> carry on drinking the drink now i've just done my job on that rally so you must have i've always thought about this with commentators every single name of every rugby team in your head like you know you've always got that one pal at the pub who knows everyone and they go oh god do you remember hugo rodiego at wigan and i'm like who the hell is hugo rodiego and they just know everything. i feel like commentators they must know Every single name, They've, you've got to learn them before the game, learn their numbers. If I was Hereford versus Cambridge, I have no idea who they are. I've got to learn all the names. I've got to learn all the numbers. I've got to learn what colours they're in. I've got to learn where I am, all that kind of stuff. The prep must be ridiculous. But because of the length that you've been doing it, you must know a million names. You must be amazing well, at pop what, quizzes, which apparently you are. <laughs> what, what, what an assumption. Because not at all, not for me. I have, I have colleagues that can say, oh, of course, because in the 97 second lines test, it was because he scored the second try and they, yeah but he was subbed off uh, on the 68th minute and he came back on but then there was a head injury I'm like what it's completely transient for me it goes in one and out the other but yeah. when I'm focused on the game I've got to commentate on that week I'll be completely into it I'll be looking up the players I'll be yeah. doing you know five six hours prep um, ahead of the game I will be contacting anybody that's got names that might be pronounced unfamiliarly it's a very useful thing that I have a relatively musical ear and went to drama school yeah. and that tongue placement and all of that stuff is really important. I count myself as one of the best of getting names right, I like to think, and also out of respect for people because you you do hear commentators sometimes, pundits as well, and they'll come across a difficult name and they'll bastardise it and then someone else will turn around and say, oh, you didn't get that right, and they go, well, you know what I mean. Yeah. This is someone's name. Take yeah, the time yeah, yeah. and good grace to say yeah, it correctly. Yeah. That's um, daunting, you know, in a global sport. That's really hard. Yeah. Lance and and Mamakashvili and all of the Georgian 
Belgium's Nunez Vili and all of those yeah, guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the Islanders and there's an awful lot of fun to be had. Wow. And that's a dexterity and a muscularity that needs yeah. prep, right? And, I, and I do a full theatre level vocal warm up yeah. before a lot of things. It's helpful if I'm driving somewhere because then I can do the whole thing in the car and then even have a bit of a sing song and make sure I'm fully warmed up. Half the fun being a, a, an ex West End Wendy is, is also loving the opportunity to get a good song on after a commentary because my voice is never warmer <laughs> so i get i get in the car and i'm what like i can get yeah. the lovely higher notes of songs <laughs> that i can't normally but then i'm like oh you're doing the commentary tomorrow don't ruin your voice again ahead of well that's um, your next viral hit is you know a show tune by nick heath on the yeah. way home from matches and i yeah. think the whole series yeah but no i keep none of the information i'm absolutely useless at that wow. i i can if you ask me on the day i can bring you all the stats of all the players i'm about to commentate on and about three or four days later, it's all completely gone. Yeah, I think it's a bit like people who whose pee smells after asparagus. There's a certain part <laughs> of the population where that's an immediate response and <laughs> it just doesn't affect other people. And I'm a bit like that. Information comes in, I think I've got a really good holding space for it mm. temporarily, and then it goes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I worked with a chap recently on a job and he's quoting the lines, he's 75 years old, and he's quoting lines from his debut, Yeah, you know, yeah. 50, some 50 years earlier, and yeah. I'm just not that person at all. Yeah. I can't remember a joke. Yeah. I couldn't tell you a joke now. No, I, I, I think that's good. I think you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, is it a yeah, personal holiday when you sit in a stand, are you sort of internally commentating? I, what yeah. I have become now is a, a, an advocate irritant for improving the fan experience because... If I'm commentating, and most games I attend, I am commentating now, just purely percentage-wise, then I'm plugged into my headphones. I can hear the referee through the microphone. So we've got a full picture of what's going on and, and what's going on in the game. And if you've paid anything from 40 quid for some club games up to 200 quid for some of the games at Twickenham or whatever you're sat in your stand without any information being given to you um you know we've got great referees that demand respect in rugby and and are mic'd up we don't put that out in the stadium now I guess some stadiums some stadia are also not greatly equipped in terms of PA systems yeah so therefore bring a sponsor on so that people can have the ref link things in their ears and give them out for free so that people... I just think rugby is a complex enough game that by leaving people distanced in the stands from not having the information, you're not helping them feel engaged and wanting to really, you know, come back. Now, I get that you've also got people that are very happy to be sat in the stands, not entirely paying attention to the game because they're catching up with their mates, having a few beers and cheering when a try is scored. I get yeah. I don't yeah. need everybody to be 100% engaged. It's not a test. But I do think we leave fans a bit short bearing in mind the money they pay to be part of a game so i am um, uh, i do sit frustrated in sta- in stadia sometimes just well i i can't hear what's going on I, mean, I i know all the ref signals because i'm i'm up to speed and i can i can see what's happened and mates will go what happened there nick from the stands but i'm like you should have the right to know what's going on here yeah because you've paid for your ticket and and that we're, we're, we're technologically advanced by now that we should find a way of of keeping your keeping the, the audience uh the fans uh yeah. informed yeah if i went to a a rugby game with you nick i would expect you to commentate every single moment <laughs> i'm not joking i'd be like nick put your beer down stop eating the pie tell me what's going on <laughs> i will do that for you jack uh, set the day i think that's pushing it an open door yeah so you've already so let's talk about our bucket list if you can recall uh, yes, it now you've already been to one of them as you'll see in alliance tour to new zealand is on there mm. we debated south africa versus new zealand probably south africa are the better team maybe at the minute you can make an argument for but we just felt, you know, to be New to Zealand, be New Zealand. Zealand. That must have been a great experience. 
So you've ticked that one off. Views on the bucket list, what would you add to that? What would you take away? Have you been to any? I've not been to uh, to any of the others other than the one mentioned. I would love to do the 100-metre final. Yes. Um, yeah. I, think, I think that would interest. I know as a kind of rugby fan and general sports fan, particularly rugby, the two seem to dovetail. I'm meant to be very into cricket, and I'm not. I've really <laughs> tried. Um, I got quite into the ashes. That was fine. I had it on the radio, and I had it on a watch bits on TV when it got tense, and I kind of can get into that occasion. Yeah. But just general tours and bits, and and there are there are some fairly hefty sized pockets of the rule book and game. I know I don't understand. You're not you're, you're not drinking enough, unfortunately. That's the main problem. That, yeah, maybe. Um, I've not been to enough live, and I appreciate that. Actually, that that is something I should do more of. Yeah, those hangovers hurt these days. Yeah, they do. So um, I sort of I'm less fussed about the cricket. I mean, the kabaddi was an interesting one on the list. <laughs> right, right. I mean, literally, that came out so of I nowhere. I don't know. I'm not sure. I've even heard the word kabaddi since it's Channel 4 in about, Trans World Sport. in about 1994. Yeah. Yeah, That's got to be a cultural phenomenon of its own. So yeah. that, that one certainly appealed. French Open, I also think, would be quite cool. I was lucky enough to go to the US Open a few years ago. I've, How was that? I've been to two. It was great. Yeah, kind yeah. of sat up the back of the Arthur Ashe Stadium yeah, um, on a sweaty September day. But yeah. I suggested the... I, I love. I do really love tennis, and I really love Wimbledon. Does the atmosphere mm. differ at the French to Wimbledon? What's is it sort of that same sort of vibe, or is it kind of uh, sorry, sorry, the US? The US is is a little different, and you've only got to look on the telly. Like it's just more diverse. There are more. Yeah. There are more people that feel like they've been given access to the tickets yes. than it looks at Wimbledon yeah. when everyone's wearing a bloody boater and yeah. drinking pims and you know like everyone looks like they got gout. Yes. Um it's just I don't know, you know, yes I was there this summer and absolutely loved it and had my strawberries and cream and all of that and and that is the experience but I don't think it's particularly accessible yeah. and I think the US Open is is much better at that so you get a bit more of a real atmosphere. I think there've been people that said, you know, actually the the year out of lockdown when it wasn't a ballot and anybody could get tickets to to go was actually one of the best in terms of the best, atmosphere. Yeah. Because because yeah. you don't have people that are going out of a sense of entitlement. Oh yeah, we get tickets every year. Do you? Well, what about giving well, them to someone else for change? That's a real yes. worry about the centre court. They have those debenture seats, don't they? They're given mm. out to people, and yeah, that's like there's like ten thousand tickets. That's half the half the stadium. It's obscene. I appreciate. It. I'm talking from the, for, as a bloke who works in a very middle class sport in rugby. But <laughs> yes, yeah, but, but yes, that's true. That's true. So what what remains on your sporting bucket list? That's a really interesting question. I was trying to think about that. I mean, yeah, I, I was. I went along to the twenty. 12 opening ceremony rehearsal the day before because a friend of mine was in it um, yes. and got to wow. watch that and that certification and then we went along and we went to some of the diving as well so I think Olympics generally yeah. are things I'd like to I'd like to attend more we've got some tickets to Paris next year what have you got but we're going to the sevens great ah, brilliant. yeah so that'll be fun I've not been that bothered about going to men's football there's an element of toxic masculinity about it i'm not into mm. to cast a massive generalization i appreciate i did go to the lionesses against the usa at wembley last year i thought the atmosphere was amazing yeah, it was yeah. lighter there was a there was a lot of you know standard pantomimic booing when the usa had the ball and megan rapino and and, and at halftime they played man i feel like a woman shania twain and i was on oh, my brilliant. feet dancing and <laughs> singing and I, I was just like i was like this is fun 
right? This is great. And the yeah, atmosphere yeah. was just bubbling nicely. Everyone was having a good Edinburgh off going get drinks and food and whatever. I just loved it. And we had 58,500 people at Twickenham for the England Red Roses against France in April for the Women's Six Nations decider. The biggest crowd there's ever been um, at a women's international. And my husband and I have got this sort of slightly rose-tinted view because I, you know, I work a lot in women's rugby. I'm a big, big advocate of it. Watching the growth of the Lionesses and also the WSL with big crowds at Chelsea and Arsenal and City and that kind of thing is that if you're getting to the point where the dads in families can go, well, I can either go and spend half the cost and take the whole family to this really nice day out where we still cheer the goals the same and we still enjoy the atmosphere the same, or I go with all the lads and I've got to pretend I really want a fourth pint. There's elements to that blokish side of life that I sort of think slowly, decade by decade, men are beginning to turn around and go, really? Do we we have to keep signing up Mm. to this? Mm. And I just wonder whether that element of taking all of that pressure away could mean that over the next few years, the next decade or two, women's sport ends up occupying this place that almost no one dared think about in that they're going, oh, did you go and watch England men? Oh, right, were there many people there? Yeah, you know, 20,000, 30,000. Oh, that's good. But they can't get a ticket for the Lionesses because everyone goes and it's this incredible festival. And, it's, yeah. you know, um, now I'm probably, you know, living in a slightly unreal world because, you know, the boys are always going to want to go out and, and cheer on the football kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it culturally. But I think it's an interesting as to how people consume their sport and actually what they want out of it and the choices now that are really out there when you can go to, go to atmospheres that that don't feel as threatening or as or as toxic i think that's a really good shout i mean it's it's just it's more options and i think that's the most Mm. important thing about sport it's more accessible i mean i went to the 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 final i mean we've spoken about it countless times in this podcast but that final with england versus germany in the in the euros last year it it was just i mean the word festival is just so synonymous with that sort of atmosphere now and it is just a completely different I'm sick to death of it constantly being compared. I mean, it will be compared because it's the same sport. But the the fan experience, you can't compare them. They're completely different things. And if you see them as different entities, they are a hell of a lot more interesting and in-depth. And your option and your choice about what you want to do and what you want to see or take the family or do the lads or do the girls or whatever Mm. just makes it so much better for all of us. More sport. What's wrong with more sport? Brilliant. Well, there are a lot more inclusive spaces, aren't there, on and off the pitch. And it's a quite deliberate segue just to talk a little bit about Pride in Touch because you put a lot of energy into that these days. Tell us a bit about it and your ambition for it. Yeah, so Pride in Touch, uh, inclusive organisation set up by me and my husband who have got a lot out of the slightly obscure, silly game that is touch rugby this is a kind of six against six high intensity version of the sport i know you know it rob through the clapham feelers it's a game i got into 15 years ago 16 years ago um started playing loved it was playing for a number of years socially then found a club that actually taught you how to play it properly then had the opportunity to trial regionally and then nationally and then played in the european championships for the england men's 35s in 2018 which is hilarious that i have managed to do that um fittest i've been in my life yeah Um, a great game a very inclusive game because you can play men's you can play women's but you can play mixed as well which is a really key part of the sport you can play you play in a mixed team of six where it's three men three women having got an awful lot out of the sport introduced it to my husband 
husband turns out he was better at it than me, which is <laughs> always nice. We basically saw the opportunity. It was actually our, our pub team, my Misfits pub team. We were like, oh, wouldn't it be quite nice to do some inclusive, an inclusive rainbow version of our vest um, for Pride Month coming up? And then we thought maybe we can do better than that. We could actually create some. And if people want to buy them, we'll send a percentage to a charity. And then our initial outreach in that wasn't quite working. We weren't getting the engagement from the people we were trying to deal with. And then we thought maybe we just do something ourselves. So we set up Pride in Touch, bring the sport to the LGBT community and say, look, you might not have found team sport before. You might have not liked it for all the reasons at school that the LGBT people get told or, or how it makes them feel just to give more people the opportunity to enjoy the social and physical aspects of, of team sport. It's gone, you know, bigger in the time that we, since we started it only three years ago than we imagined. And and actually la- the last year has been a really educational one because while we do a, an annual tournament um, and we've done London, Manchester and, and Glasgow this year, which had over 200 people at it, in the last year, we've also worked with a community group in West London who were set up to do pub walks and quizzes and all sorts of stuff that isn't just boozing, which the queer community are very good at leaning on, but can't necessarily be always too good for your mental health. This amazing guy, Aubrey, who runs West London Queer Project, said to us, oh, we'd love to, we hear that touch can be quite inclusive when you come and come and teach it to our, our community. And we were like, yeah, sure, we'll come and do a couple of taster sessions. Did that for six months and they kept coming back and we thought it's very good of them to humor us by coming to these sessions that we're doing and then we got to the new year and they were like can we do this more we were like really this is going remarkably well so then we took to doing it weekly all the way through until this summer when they said well actually we might get our own kit now and we'd quite like to brand ourselves and what tournaments can we come and play and what leagues could we play in and we just couldn't really believe it and we had a a sort of year's anniversary of what we've done with them in July and had a barbecue and a few games and some of the feelers came down and the and the Steelers and some other friends and and then over a couple of years afterwards basically various of them almost in queue form came up to to me and tom and said i was going to leave london because i didn't feel like i belonged here but you've changed that i feel part of a community and part of sport i never imagined i'd feel that i didn't play sport since i was nine at school and managed to find excuses to never play and i've been playing rugby a version of for 12 months people that were going to move move out move back home to to different countries back um, back home to ireland and stuff have stayed they feel now they've got something to keep them here so we were in tears for about two or three hours but just a real reminder of the power of sport to make those those connections give people a sense of belonging and and i think done in the right way you've got people who won't necessarily be able to pass the ball very well because unlike most blokes that have picked up a ball in their utility room and chuck it about while they're on the phone or whatever they're it's just not a space that, that certain people have always occupied. So you can be starting at quite base level in terms of some hand-eye coordination with some people. But if you recognise that and are sympathetic to it, then the curve of improvement and success is massive and quick. Yeah. And you then get to sit around to people and go, have you realised what you've done? Have you realised how far you've come in this time? And we didn't set it up to be to be touch coaches, but in the roles we've had to take on and do that, particularly with this project. And there's a whole load of other stuff we're doing, research and tournaments and stuff. But this has been a real kind of feather in the cap over the last year as as the lessons we learn, talking to people who are non-binary, people who are trans, saying you're welcome in the game as well. You can self-identify and play as you wish because we've helped influence the policy at governing board level. So yeah, it's a really proud thing. And 
I've absolutely no idea where it's going to go next. Yeah. But it's taught me so much about our community that I didn't know. What an amazing legacy for you both in years to come. And it's something you should be really proud of because I've seen personally so. the absolutely impact beautiful. of it. But I think you also speak to that commonality that Jack and I have discussed, irrespective of gender and sexuality, about the power of sport, the community that comes with that. Yeah. And indeed, theatre. I've got a friend who's out living in Amsterdam, having lived in London for a long time. He messaged me the other week to say he'd never done any acting in his life, but he'd start this improvisation class and he's doing monologues as part of this group. Amazing. Yeah. Just to really challenge himself and meet new people. And I think any kind of community, be it sport or theatre or lots of different activities, is yeah. one of the best ways to get to know people in a new city and 100%. find friends and, and change your relationship. To stuff. That connectivity and confidence that comes with it, it's just, you can't, if you could bottle it and sell it, you would. It's really, really true. But that sounds amazing. My husband very sweetly did a 10-year book um, of our Misfits pub team that I've kind of organised for a while, and this was a little while ago. And there were loads of Aussies and Kiwis and Saffers that have been part of the team, but all of them said, well, when you go to a new city you go and find sport to help yeah. find your sporting and friend family. And I found that through joining Misfits. And it's just like, yeah. I never, yeah. you know, I, it was never set up to have that achievement. But if that's what it's ended up being for people, what an amazing thing that it is. So you're right, Jack. It's, yeah. 100%. I think we've we've all been there. I think when, I mean, when I moved to London, I got, you've got Clapham Fiddlers. I played for a football team and never felt more connected with my community and where I'm from and where I am now mm. in this in this little suburb in London. It's it's huge. Absolutely huge. So well bloody done, Nick. Good on well, you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, team. Very nice to be able to talk about it. Good. All right. Final question then, Nick. So Mm -hmm. our premise here in our shameless pursuit of an invitation to our bucket list is a request for you to introduce us to a future guest of the podcast, theatrical or sporting related. Who did you consider here? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I've settled on one yet. This is the this is the slight issue. I've got I mean there's Danny Kerr, the current England scrum half. You know, he celebrated his a great year, testimonial year. He basically dressed as the greatest showman, not shy of a of a little sing song and a and a show <laughs> <Brilliant>. tune. Um <laughs> lovely boy from Leeds originally. So you know uh, right, yeah. right up your northern streets. Yes. Danny could be a, a useful ally. Whether he can pull any strings to get you closer to a Lions store in New Zealand, bring in mind he's not been a British and Irish yeah, lion. He might be a step further. He, he could be a step closer. God, I love this, Nick. Yeah. Um, that was <laughs> one thought. Happy. And then I was thinking maybe Rocky Clark or Sarah Hunter, who have, well, Rocky Clark was the leading caps record holder for a very long time until Sarah Hunter, basically in the last year of her career, added a few extra. So, uh, yeah, recently retired um, in the women's captain. Sarah Hunter might also be well-placed. She's now yes. coaching with England. But, you know, there's talk that in the years to come, there may be a Women's Lions tour as well. Yes. So I think you oh, want brilliant. those people that have recently left the game who yes. could be in influential roles to try and help those things. So I'm I'm prepared to do some work for you on, on both of those amazing. fronts. Amazing. Um, amazing. And, and, yeah, and see yeah, where we can get. That's amazing. Oh, brilliant. Thanks so much, Nick. And thanks. It's been such a great chat. Fantastic. I really, Thank really enjoyed so it. Much, to get yeah. that insight into the world of your performance as a yeah. commentator is really, really brilliant. Well, really it's incredible. it's the unique nature of your stage or athletic <laughs> podcast that allows allows someone like me to go, oh, I, and I had that world alongside this world. That, you said that earlier. It's it, the, the two things have often felt opposed. So to be able to bring the two together, yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's been a good idea, boys. It, it was has. a good idea, yeah. I would like to think so. Anyway. It wasn't our last question, was it? Because we need to oh, no, give you yeah, a position yeah. in the club. You can choose to be anything in the club mm. we've got the positions filled so far are water boy and sports psychologist mm-hmm. scout got a scout haven't we scout chief scout is chief scout. Uh, also taken mm-hmm. so i mean you can be anywhere playing administrative 
strategic. Um, um, I'd like to take the role of social sec, if I may. Oh, you may. You, you can absolutely have that. may. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to your debut social mm, yeah so <laughs> good look out so, for invites you know i think team culture is uh, what it's all about get the team culture right off the field and you know you'll play for each other on the field so uh, let's have some good times great Amazing. Show, Nick. well that. you're very Thank welcome you so on much. board welcome to stage Shore athletic yeah <laughs> thanks so much Nick Heath. Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. What are your socials, Nick? Should put it out there? At Nick Heath Sport, if you want to back You're quite big on the old um, Twitter sphere, aren't you? Yeah, well, it turns out when you do silly commentaries of people crossing the road during lockdown that you get really popular with, like, housewives in Connecticut. So I went from having 15,000 rugby fans to having 125,000 fans in America. About 20,000 of them have left me since I actually went back to talking about rugby. No, I don't. And the others are just waiting for me to do another stupid commentary. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, boys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Amazing, Nick. Thanks. Oh, so good to chat to Nick. Now, keen listeners will have observed that we didn't do the quiz, but we did. We did do the quiz, but we thought we might save it for a special bonus pod available later this week. So the quiz is coming up, isn't it, Jack? I'm shitting myself. Absolutely shitting myself. He texted me a couple of weeks ago going, Nick Heath. I was like, uh, commentate. Yeah, I'm good friends. He's coming around. Brilliant. What else has he done? Oh, I commentated. Pub quiz went viral. I'm like, for fuck's sake, I'm going to do the quiz. <laughs> So I've made it difficult. So Rob is screwed. These questions are primarily kind of Nick's sort of level. So we've renamed it for one week only, a special conversion kickoff with Nick Heath out in the next few days on your podcast platforms. Keep an eye out for that. Well, that's full time on another Stage Door Athletic pod. Thanks for listening. Make sure to look out for encores with bonus pod episodes where we talk about all sorts from awful advert auditions to top transfers. And stay in touch. Meet other club members and share your best sporting moments on Instagram at Stage Door Athletic. And on TikTok at Stage Door Athletic as well. Right, we're off to the clubhouse for a pint. I'm in. Mean,